Okay, so um, how many of you can say that Leviticus is your favorite book in the Bible? You know, we've all read through the book of Leviticus many times, right? Every word. We just get in there and, oh, it just is so deep. And we just sit there and meditate on a verse for an hour and it just speaks to us, right? That, that's your... Yeah. Um, you know, growing up in an evangelical church, it was kind of a joke. Like, not the book of Leviticus, but if someone was like, you know, I've decided I'm going to read through the whole Bible. You know, the first thing we'd say is, well, have you hit Leviticus yet? And then everybody gives a little snirk because we know that, you know, sometimes you're doing well, you're going strong, and then you hit Leviticus, and a lot of people just give up at that point. You know, you kind of hit those chapters about popping birds' heads off and dash the blood on the north side of the altar, and then this, the blood goes on the west side there. Tear the bird, but don't tear the thing in half. Don't sever it. And it's like, Father, I know you're speaking to me, but what are you trying to say? You know, it's, it's just, it's, and especially if you have pet birds, you know, you don't want to do that to your bird. So it's, Le- Leviticus can be challenging for some people. I, personally, I love the book of Leviticus. Uh, last year we talked about how the, uh, the, the letter Aleph in the very first word of this book is diminished. And it, it, something that we believe it points to is Yeshua, who said he's the Alpha and the Omega, the Aleph and the Tav. So, you know, Yeshua, the whole Torah points to him. He is the goal of the law, right? So the book of Leviticus points to Messiah. The book of Leviticus has some of the most profound teachings about the gospel that the entire Hebrew Bible contains. So I'm pumped to go through Leviticus with you. This is going to be a great journey. Um, there is, um, there, there's, a, there's a famous uh, speaker named Rob Bell. He's part of the emergent movement. I, I disagree with the liberal theology of the emergent movement, but it's interesting that when Rob Bell started his church, Mars Hill Bible Church, he started on the book of Leviticus. Like, how many church planters start? Their, their, their first sermon series is on Leviticus. And he spent, like, over a year on it and his church attendance went from whatever they started with to 800. Yeah. What, why? What, what does that tell us? Could, could it be that there is a real hunger in the body of Messiah to understand the foundational books of Scripture? Like, how does the book of Leviticus relate to us? What is, what, how does this point to Messiah? So that, that's what we're going to go for here. And um, I, I promise you, we won't spend a whole year on Leviticus. We'll spend a couple months, I guess, as we're, as we're reading through it on our annual cycle. And I expect that by that time, we'll have about 500 people in this gym. Well, the, um, the names of the, the, the Pentateuch are the Greek names, except for uh, numbers, which should be a rhythmoi if you want to be consistent. So let, let's, let's, let's just, I'm just going to break this down, and I'm going to give you some overtones of this book. And uh, hopefully the things that you'll find relevant and uh, practical, even for your life this next week. Um, Mike had pointed out that the name of this book in Hebrew is Vaikra. Everybody say Vaikra. And uh, it's named after the first key word, called. And he called. So let's note something here. The very first word of this book in Hebrew is and. The book begins with an and. That means it's a continuation of the book of Exodus. So the book of Leviticus is all about holiness. It's about the priesthood. We're called to be a priesthood. We're called to be a priesthood that brings the Father's love, that brings his healing. So what does that tell us? What precedes holiness and operating as a priesthood, etc.? The book of Exodus. Coming out of Egypt. Experiencing redemption through the blood of the Lamb. Setting up the tabernacle. Absolutely, like preparing for him. Yeah. So that's the first thing that we can note here. 
Exodus comes before Leviticus, not just in terms of the, the chronology of the books, but in terms of personal experience. Um, and it goes on to say, and he called. The Hebrew word there is kara. It means to call. It means to cry out. Have you ever heard someone like cry out in pain or cry out in joy? It's, it's one of the most authentic moments a person can have when they're crying out. And that's how this book starts. So we learn that the book of Leviticus is the heart cry of Elohim of God. So if you want to hear something so deep in his heart, read through the book of Leviticus and listen for that. You, you will hear the heart cry of God in this book. Um, the word kara also means to invite, to beckon. So there's something in this book that is an invitation from the Father. If you listen, you will hear Messiah calling you to something throughout this book. So let's, let's watch for that also as, as, as we go through it. Um, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to Yahweh. And the Hebrew word there for man isn't ish, which is the usual word for man. The Hebrew word is adam. Everybody say adam. As in Adam. Now the word Adam in Hebrew means all of humanity, the descendants of the first human beings. Um, Adam also means not just like the male gender. Adam means male and female genders in composite unity. So at the very beginning of this book, we see that Leviticus, okay, often people will say Leviticus, well that's that's, uh, Levitical, right? That applies to the Levitical priesthood or that's for the Jews or whatever. So I'm not Jewish and I don't like Israel or I don't associate with Israel very closely. So my eyes just kind of roll to the back of my head and glaze over when I read a Leviticus. That's That's a lot of our experience, right? But what this is saying is this book is for everybody, not just for Jews. The book of Leviticus is for everybody if you're a descendant of Adam. So if you're an alien, then this isn't for you. But we don't have a lot of aliens around, so that doesn't, so that doesn't matter. So um, that's, that's something notable. Actually, there's another term he, he, he uses also to underscore that, that the, the heart cry of this book is for everyone. In uh, Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to Yahweh. Leviticus 2, verse 1. And the Hebrew word there for anyone is nephesh. Everybody say nephesh. It's the word often translated as soul, and it means a person, Right? So he's saying when a person, when any person presents a grain offering. So again, he didn't say any man, he didn't say any son of Israel or a Jew or whatever. He said when any person wants to bring that offering. So you can just hear all the way in Leviticus that our creator isn't racist, that he, his heart cry is just to have everyone come to him and worship. He's inviting every, every nationality to bring that offering. Maybe that's where Yeshua comes in to, uh, to, uh, to activate that in um, 1 verse 2, we have the, uh, chapter 1 verse 2, we have the word for uh, an offering, bringing an offering. The Hebrew verb is karav. Everybody say karav. It means to, it means to like to come close. It means to approach. It means to draw near. Uh, for instance, in James chapter 4 verse 7, when he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, in Hebrew he's saying karav to Elohim, and Elohim will karav to you. It's that word. This is in Leviticus 1, verse 2. This is setting the tone for the book. Um, It's like to approach to the point of being in intimate parameters with someone. I'll give you an example of this word. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3, in the book of Yeshayahu, he says, Va'ekrav el hanaviyah. And I approached the prophetess, and she conceived. The prophetess, by the way, was his wife. That's the way it works. And um, 
Did you hear that though? It's that word. And I approached the prophetess. I came close to her, I drew, drew near to her, and she conceived. So that's the word here in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 2 for drawing, drawing near to him. When we bring him an offering, there, that's that relational intimacy that we're experiencing with him. Man, isn't this rich? We're in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 2. This is like his heart. Mm. Absolutely. James is like commentary on Leviticus, you could say. Chapter 4, verse 7. Um, the Hebrew word for an offering is korban. Everybody say korban. It's from the root of karav, to draw near. So it's translated offering, but that's not a good translation because the, the idea behind a, a korban, actually you remember that, that, that word is used in the Gospel of Mark. Yeshua is criticizing um, some religious people for letting their traditions take precedence over commandments. And they say, you know, whatever I would have supported my parents with is korban. You know, it's, it, it's that word there. Um, anyway, it, a korban means something that's brought near. Uh, a gift given in the context of a relationship. Uh, something exchanged within intimate parameters. This is the idea behind an offering. So when we bring him an offering of, of worship, when we, when we pray in Yeshua's name, when we, when we praise him, even when we don't feel like it some Shabbat mornings, that's what's happening. We are bringing a korban offering. Um, we're drawing near to him through that. Yeah, let's... Um, what would be an example? Okay, I'll give you a little example. Uh, sometimes I like to, if I hear that Genevieve likes uh, maybe a certain CD or some object, I'll, I'll try and sneakily buy it for her, right? And give it to her as a gift. And that's a korban. It's a, very, it's a very basic example of how when you give someone a gift, it brings you closer to that person. And it brings that person closer to you. So that's the idea here. So it's not just about popping birds' heads off and blood all over the place and gore, right? Um, we're, we're, we're getting into the heart of this thing. In um, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3, we have another key word. He says, um, Offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before Yahweh. That he may be accepted before Yahweh. I just realized I forgot to hit something. Okay, good. No, we're good. Just have to remember to... Turn the camcorder on, or it doesn't record very well, um, generally speaking. Okay, so 1 verse 3, it says, th- that word there for his acceptance, the Hebrew word for acceptance is ratzon. Everybody say, ratzon. Yeah, ratzon. You could like spell that R-A-T-Z-O-N. Ratzon. Um, yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, ratzon ha is your ratzon. And uh, the root of it is a verb, ratz. Does anyone remember me demonstrating that word before when I was running back and forth up here? I'm not going to do it this time because I'm kind of comfortable. But um, the word ratz means to run. So ratzon in Hebrew is like what you are running after, what you run for. That's your ratzon. And it has the connotation of like uh, delight, what you delight in, uh, pleasure, what, you, what pleases you or brings, uh, brings pleasure to you, uh, desire, uh, that is to say, what you want, um, and will. What is your will? All of these words are wrapped up in the Hebrew word ratzon. So, as you pointed out, Lois, um, when, we, when we pray the Lord's Prayer in Hebrew, we say, yeah, let your, your will, your desire, let it be done. So it's, it's a big word. 
Yeah. And uh, that's the word here for acceptance. So he says, bring an offering and you will experience that ratzon from him. Did you notice that it starts sometimes with us? There's a part that we have to play in this thing. When you come to him in prayer, when you give that offering, even when you don't feel like it, you will experience his favor. You will bring him pleasure. Maybe it brings him pleasure when we worship him when we least feel like it. Do you know what I mean? Like when your heart is just torn apart and you are bleeding on the floor and you say, God, I love you anyway, maybe that's what touches his heart more than anything, hey? Um, that, that's, that's something I, I get out of this. And the, the most amazing thing is Yeshua through his offering, that was like the ultimate offering, wasn't it? So like the Father accepts you because of Yeshua's offering. He, he will never accept you more than he has. He has com- fully accepted you because of what Yeshua had done. So that's the other, that's the other uh, side of the equation, hey? Yeah. In uh, 1 verse 3, it goes on to say, L'chaper, alav, to make atonement on his behalf. Uh, what does that verb kapar mean? What's that literally mean? To cover, that's right. So uh, offer this offering to be, so that you'll be accepted and it, it'll cover for you. Let me ask you, who, who, whose offering has made ultimate atonement for us? Yeah, that's right. Man, no-brainer questions, hey? But it's just, I just love how this, this book at the very beginning points to Yeshua's atonement. Um, let's look at Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9. It says, um, a burnt offering. It mentions this burnt offering, right? And uh, the Hebrew word is ola. Everybody say ola. Kind of sounds Spanish, right? O-L-A-H. And... Uh, this is a word that we really love in our congregation. Remember the word for going up? What is it? Aliyah. Linda is going to be making Aliyah in the next week or two when she goes up to Jerusalem. When you go up to read the Torah from the Bema, that's called what? Making Aliyah, right? You make an Aliyah up to the Bema, the, uh, the reading lectern. And uh, that's the word here for this burnt offering. A burnt offering is an Olah. It's something that goes up. So the idea is that whole thing burns on the altar and it goes up in smoke. That's, a, that's an ola, that's a burnt offering. Um, it's like, um, it's the ultimate offering. With some of these things, you give a little portion, and then the priests get some, and then you get to eat most of it with your family, right? It's like a big, really nice barbecue in holy parameters. But this one, like the whole thing goes up on the altar. Uh, it would be like taking a wad of 20s and putting them on the altar, and they all burn up. You don't get anything out of it. It's a total gift. No strings attached. That's the idea behind an ola. Yeah. Um, in that same verse, this is like, okay, there are these three terms that are used over and over throughout this parasha and throughout this book. Um, that's the first one, an ola. It's like a burnt offering. Uh, the second one in verse 9 is a, a fire, fire offering. It says an offering by fire. What's the Hebrew word for fire? Aish. That's right, Aish. Uh, the word here for a fire offering is an Isha. Everybody say Isha. Like I-S-H-E-H. And uh, that means it's a fire offering. What does that teach us about true worship? True worship. What's like the active ingredient in true worship? What makes it happen? It's a fire offering. So that means it's his fire that makes it real worship, eh? Um, I don't know, have you ever been in a service where there, the fire just was not burning, like cold and boring and dead and stuff? Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, 
that I'm sure we've all experienced that. That's like the opposite of a fire offering. Like, so real worship, the fire offering, is when His love is ignited in our hearts, when His love is burning in us. Not just for Him, but for each other, right? That's the fire offering. That's the idea there. Um, and you know what? If we're ever worshiping and we're just not experiencing His fire, let's remember where James said that if we don't have anything, it's because we haven't asked Him, right? So let's just like hit the brakes, stop and say, Father, we are not feeling your fire and we don't want to go anywhere without that. Because like we want to do some real worship that's going to actually mean something to you, you know? And just ask him for the fire of his Holy Spirit. It's like the hallmark promise of the new covenant, right? Like John the Immerser, he said it over and over. He's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit and in that fire. So, I mean, we will not settle for anything less than all of the fire of his love that he has for us. Like, may we never be satisfied with worship that is anything less than something that consumes us within. Because that's, 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 um, that's the Isha, that's the fire offering. Um, the next verse here is, or the next phrase is reach nichoach. A reach is like a, a smell or a fragrance. And then nichoach is something that is like attractive or engaging or catchy. So a reach nichoach is like a fragrant aroma, an attractive scent, an engaging smell. It's the kind of like, it would probably be like the equivalent of a bride's perfume. So look at the book of Leviticus as a training manual for the bride as she prepares for the return of her groom. Worship, when we make that offering, even when we don't feel like it, that's getting ready for the bridegroom. That's something that is uh, very attractive to him. It's a beautiful fragrance. And uh, it costs us dearly sometimes, doesn't it? It really does. And I, I, I believe it means the world to him. Um, another, another key element in true worship is in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1. It says, uh, When anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to Yahweh, his offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and pour frankincense on it. Did you catch the oil? Yeah. So when it comes to grain offerings and things, you don't just give bare grain, you, you dump oil on it, right? God be nice and oily. And what is, what is oil a picture of? Yeah, the Holy Spirit, the anointing of His Spirit. So, again, we, 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 we learn from this that like, the worship that means something to Him is worship that happens when His fire is burning in us, when we're consumed with His love, and when His anointing is there and His anointing is leading us, when the Holy Spirit is operative. Uh, that's something we value very highly in our community. That's something we want to you know, consistently honor and, uh, and look for. Man, like... Leviticus, this is Old Testament stuff. Can you believe how New Testament this is? Don't you love this? Like, man, my heart was just burning as I was, as I was studying this and, and, uh, and preparing this material. Wow. Okay, here's, here's a common misconception. Um, often in our, our pop theology, we think, okay, so like all the animal sacrifices and all that temple stuff that was all for sin. Sin, sin, sin. Basically, like, every time you go to the temple, if you have to make a sacrifice, it's because you sinned. That's the general idea. Hey, how many of you have thought that or encountered that? Um, you know, I was even talking with one of the men who are on our leadership team in, in our Messianic congregation in Saskatoon, and he said, um, you know, I, I respect him very highly. He's been an elder at his church. He was the vice principal of the Christian school. And he said, you know, he always thought that all of the, all of the temple offerings were about sin. And it really surprised him when he actually began to study it and he learned that some of them have nothing to do with sin. 
Um, let, I'll, I'll give you two examples from this parasha. In Leviticus 2.14, we have a, a grain offering of early ripened things to Yahweh. Uh, the Hebrew word there is bikurim. Everybody say bikurim. It's first fruits. So this is basically just an offering that farmers would bring to say, I'm honoring you with my first fruits. You, uh, you blessed our agricultural year, and here's the first of my harvest. That has nothing to do with sin. That, that has everything to do with honoring him and saying thank you. Um, let's, let's look at another example. In um, Leviticus 3 verse 1, it says, Now if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, uh, what, what does your translation say for that? Any other variants? Leviticus 3.1? Fellowship offering, I like that. Any others? Okay. The Hebrew word there is zevach. Everybody say zevach. That sounds like a scary word, hey? Zevach. It does mean like to slaughter something, so it kind of is a scary word, I guess. And uh, shlamim. Shlamim. What does that sound like to you? Shalom. And then im on the end is masculine plural. So it's like multiple piece. Um, so... It's, uh, I like how Linda's translation renders that, fellowship offering. That's the idea. So this one, again, has nothing to do with sin. It has everything to do with just saying, you know, I love, I really love Elohim, and I'm going to go to the temple today and make an offering because I want to spend some time with him. I want to spend some time in his holy courts. I want, to, I, want to, I want to fellowship with him. So you bring that offering, and that is an avenue through which, uh, you know, the people would draw near to him. Where is this uh, grain offering? There are a couple different reasons for grain offerings. Uh, sometimes it was if people couldn't afford an animal, then they would bring a grain offering. Um, sometimes they're first fruits. What does it say here? Offering in Leviticus chapter two, verse one. No, yeah, you're right. Grain offering isn't for sin either, from what I can see there. Yeah, an excellent example. Mm-hmm. So as you can see, like in, in history past, all of these things pointed to Messiah. They were symbolic. They were, they were practical things that would facilitate fellowship with the Holy One. Um, the Jewish people are planning to rebuild the temple. If they do in his history future, I suggest to you, you know, don't, don't flip up out about it. Don't get too scared. Um, just like in times past, those things didn't, re- they didn't, they weren't ultimate atonement. They just facilitated some fellowship and stuff. That could be how it'll be in the future. It's, it's something to hold in our minds. Yeah. Um, in chapter 3, verse 9, oh, here's a good, here's a good part. We're going to really get down into this stuff now, get into the nitty-gritty. So, um, it says, 3 verse 9. So from the sacrifice of the peace offerings, he shall bring as an offering by fire to Yahweh its fat, the entire fat tail, which he shall remove close to the backbone, close to the backbone, and the fat which covers the entrails. So all the fat that covers the entrails, take note of that. And all the fat that is on the entrails. Well, so how, how is that? Did that verse really do it for you? Are you feeling the warm fuzzies right about now? No. 
Well, here, here's something interesting. Do you know what the Hebrew word for entrails is? <laughs> it's kerev. Everybody say kerev. Um, we learned that word already. What does that word mean? It means to draw near to or to come close to. So like, you know, your intestines, they're about as close to you as you're going to get. And, you know, that's the connection in Hebrew. It's like when you come close to him, it's like his, his tummy. Like if I could say it's like caroving to him, like drawing near to him, is like the equivalent of like coming up to his tummy. I don't know, I've never thought about God's tummy before. But that's the idea. Like in Hebrew, there's this connection, right? That's really close. Yeah. I used to be in someone's tummy, actually. I spent about nine months in there. We were really close. Yeah, so um, that's, the, like, that's the picture of drawing near, right? Um, okay, so here, here's the cool thing. Okay, the New American Standard, it's a little more graphic, so it uses entrails, right? Uh, a couple of the older, more classical English translations, like the King James Version or the uh, Jewish Publication Society's Version, they use the word inwards. Inwards. I like that. You know, what, when you do an offering, he wants the inwards. He, he wants what's inside. Isn't that meaningful? So like when we come to him, you know, like the externals are great. Like I love singing at the top of my lungs. I love to, I love to dance and move around. I love to put my arms in the air. It's kind of hard when you're playing keys because when your hands go up, the keyboard stops playing, right? So I don't get to do that as much. But I love those things. But what this verse is saying is like when you come to him in worship, what he's, looking for, what he's really looking for is what's inside of you. Yeah. And you know what? If you have times when you're like, God, there's nothing inside of me. I feel so empty today. I have nothing to give you. That's a good place to start. It's a good place. If you can be honest and say that, he'll take you somewhere from there, right? Maybe he'll end up filling you. Maybe when we ask him, he, he delights to give us uh, of his life-giving spirit. Yeah. What, what's like a slang term for your, uh, your intestines? Guts. I'll transliterate that for you. G-U-T-S, for those of you who are taking notes. Guts. Um, like, what does the word, what, does the word what, what are some expressions in English that, it, that use this term guts? If someone has guts, if you have, pour your guts out to someone. Yeah, it's a, it's a meaningful term, actually. Hey? Like, if someone's gutsy, it's like that person has intestinal fortitude. You've heard that, right? I never noticed that intestinal fortitude. Like, that, that's someone who's really strong. They have inner strength. They have, like, um, integrity that won't back down. They're courageous, right? Could it be that that's an element of worship? It, that, like, gutsy worship is something that the Creator loves. And out of your belly, our guts shall flow living water. Yeah, right. But we don't use that with guts. We like the belly. Yeah, guts is a little, like, I don't know, makes some people a little uncomfortable. It's kind of like hillbilly talk, right? <laughs> But, yeah, but even like you said, you know, if you really pour your heart to someone, you know, us hillbillies would say we pour our guts to someone, right? And that means like to pour with the very depths of your being to someone, to share the deepest things in your soul. And that's what he's looking for. So, you know, gutsy worship, he's all about that. That's something that I get from this, uh, from this parasha. Here, here's something really scary. Hold on to your seat. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 Verse, verses 25 and 26 say, don't give up getting together. Encourage each other regularly, like every single day, encouraging, encourage each other. And this is why. Um, it goes on to say, because 
if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. This is temple talk here, right? He's referencing the book of Leviticus. Let's look at this. Did you know that sin offerings are not for intentional sin? They're for sins that you make by mistake, uh, unintentional sins. So he's referencing the book of Leviticus, and then the author is making a drosh on it. He's making like a... uh, uh, an application. Levi. Yeah, there are some in here that would apply after doing something. Right. Absolutely. There's that half, but there are quite a few in here that are for unintentional sins. So let's look at those and thank you. Let's see, where's the first one? Uh, Leviticus 4 verse 2 says, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Okay, if a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which Yahweh has commanded not to be done, and commits any of them. So uh, we have here the concept of a negative commandment when he says, like, no, right? And we say, I'm going to do that. Like Tirza like, does on a weekly basis. Like children have a habit of doing, right? That's like, that's, um, that's more like willful sin. That's a defiance. Um, but if you do it by mistake or whatever, that's what this is about here. So then it lists some different categories of society in Israel and uh, the different, like the, 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 the penalties that they would in, incur on that. And um, what, what, let, let's just ask ourselves for a second, like what's the spirit of the law here? What is the message that applies to us? I think what it's saying is your sin has consequences. Even when you, you, know, you do something that he said not to do accidentally, the fact is, there are consequences. You know, there's, there's some inspiration there to, to live intentionally, to dig deep in the Word, um, to do our part, to, uh, to live by His righteousness, and let, let Yeshua live through us by His righteousness. So firstly, it mentions the anointed priest. And it says, like, if this guy, if he sins accidentally, he has to offer a bull. Now, in ancient times, you, don't, you didn't really have investment so much, uh, you know, you didn't have people like driving around in Hummers. Um, a, a lot of your, cap, your capital would be invested in your livestock. You're dealing with a very agricultural-based society, right? So like a bull was a big deal. That was a big cash expense, right? Uh, Greg? How does one come to know if they don't know? There is actually... Totally. I, I think it explains that there, um, there's a place here. Okay, here you are. Um, the next one. We'll touch on that with the next category. So anyway, the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, like when he sins, it's a big deal, right? He has to shell out a couple thousand dollars for that. Ouch. It would kind of be, it would kind of be an incentive to be careful to like do what God says, eh? If you know, like, you've got to shell out a couple thousand dollars if you don't. Woo, yeah. So here's, here's the next category, uh, 4 verse 13. It says, If the whole community of Israel commits error, and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly, and they commit any of the things which Yahweh has commanded not to be done, and they become guilty, when the sin which they've committed becomes known. So there's your answer, I guess. If you make an accidental error, and then it becomes known, then this is the procedure. Um, the... 
offering for the whole community, again, is a bull. So this is something notable. The whole community of Israel sins unintentionally, the offering is a bull. The high priest who represents the whole community of Israel sins unintentionally, and it's a bull. It's tantamount. So Yeshua, as our high priest, he paid in full the penalty that we would have paid. That's the first thing we can infer from that. Um, then we have another social category in ancient Israel. In Leviticus 4, verse 22, it says when a nasi, or a, um, a leader sins, and unintentionally does any of the things, then his, uh, his penalty is a, a male goat. So it's you know, a step down from a bull, a male goat, right? And then in Leviticus 4.27, it says, when the Am Ha'aretz, when the people of the land, or the, uh, the, uh, the populace, uh, the common people, when one of them sins, then you offer a female goat. So when it's like a leader, it's a male goat. When it's, uh, when it's uh, you know, a regular dude, it's um, a female goat or a lamb. So we learn something from this. Like, the degree to which you're in a leadership position, the, the degree to which you have influence with other people, that's a very serious thing. And, you know, the, the more influence you have, the graver your sin becomes because it affects more people. The consequences are greater. And as a result, he has this, different, this list of the different offerings that are made to, uh, to communicate that, that to us. So, you know, when it, there, there are people who are called to leadership in the body of Messiah. Um, you know, you'll have, you'll have young men or women in their teens who will experience a genuine call and my encouragement to people like that is, don't go for the glory, go for the humility, firstly, and develop your personal righteousness, grow in integrity, because then you can be trusted with his power. Then he can give you that influence, and you're not going to go do something stupid and blow it and hurt a lot of people. Right? There's, there's a progression here. That, that applies to all of us in this room. Yeah. Makes you wonder if people are setting themselves up I've done some stupid things like even on Facebook I've said some stupid things that I regretted seriously people have been like you know they send me a message and be like Izzy like are you sure you want to write that are you sure maybe that'll communicate what you're saying or is there room there for misunderstanding and I take things back right I'm growing so <laughs> that's an example from, from my world yeah Hmm. I believe so. Our personal righteousness does come from Messiah, but we also have that side where we work out our salvation, where we learn to walk in that righteousness. Hey, be holy as He's holy. Absolutely. But yeah, we never want to get the cart before the horse. Our righteousness is in Yeshua. That's primary. And then that flows out in, in, in terms of our behavior. Um, I, love, I love this verse. Uh, 4 verse 3, the, the anointed priest is how your translation will have it. The Hebrew is the Kohen. Everybody say Kohen. Hamashiach. Everybody say Hamashiach. What does Hamashiach mean? How do you say Jesus the Christ in Hebrew? Yeshua Hamashiach. So to say the Christ in Hebrew, the anointed one, you say Hamashiach. Here Aaron and his successors are called the Kohen, the priest, Hamashiach. The anointed priest. The Christ priest. Isn't that interesting? So you know, sometimes in our world we'll be like, Jesus is the Christ. And that's true. He is the anointed one. 
the ultimate anointed one. But all the way back in the book of Leviticus, you have people who are messiahs in the sense of being anointed. right? So that communicates something very profound to us about Yeshua as the Christ. Just like the priest was anointed, Yeshua is anointed. Yeshua is the priest. So all of this stuff about the priestly job description, that's pointing to Yeshua's job description. There, there are some pretty strong connections there. I'd be interested. I'm sure in the Greek Septuagint it would actually use the word like Christos, where it says Mashiach in the Hebrew. So I, that one really gets me going. I love that. The Kohen HaMashiach, the anointed priest. Um, over and over again, you'll notice that it says they'll bring an offering when they've sinned and they will be forgiven. Did you notice that? Venis Lachlehem, it says. And um, I appreciate that. There's a lot of forgiveness in the law. Over and over. And they will be forgiven. Don't you love that? Like the gospel. Uh, the Hebrew word for forgiveness is like salach. To salach, someone is to forgive them. Everybody say salach. Yeah, maybe, maybe you know the word for excuse me in Hebrew, in modern Hebrew. Slicha. Slicha, right? Excuse me, forgive me. Um, it literally means to, like, to let go of something, to throw it from you, to cast it away from you. That's the physical picture of forgiveness. So he's saying, like, you know, when a person repents, when they confess their sin, when they come clean, I forgive them, I release them, I let it go. And we're called to do the same thing. We, we pray that every day. If you pray, if you pray the Lord's Prayer every day, every day you pray, God, I pray that you'd forgive me just like I forgive other people to that degree. Wow, eh? I, that's the hardest thing in the world. I was talking with someone about that recently. Um, you know, if someone has, has abused you or hurt you deeply, um, I'm sure we've all experienced that. If you haven't yet, you definitely will. You don't just, it's forgiveness isn't a one-time thing. Forgiveness is a process that can take years. It's like every day my heart feels that pain and I let it go. And it comes back to me and I let it go again. And it comes back to me and I let it go again. I mean, I have forgiven some people hundreds of times. Right? I encourage you with that. That's what he's about. He, he is forgiving. Therefore, we can be forgiving. We can, we can release people. Yeah. Um, here's something kind of interesting. In the beginning of Leviticus chapter 5, it talks about like touching um, the carcasses of unclean animals. And uh, you'll notice here that it says that makes you unclean. The Hebrew word, there's like tamay. Um, you'll notice it doesn't say that's a sin. It just says that you'll, be, you'll have the unclean status. When there's no temple around, then a lot of this stuff isn't directly applicable. But it's still a good idea, hygienically speaking, to, you know, if you find a dead rat in your basement, don't just go grab the thing with your hands, right? You can, like, pick it up with something that you're never going to touch again, right? I mean, we do that, right? But it's just kind of interesting that that's part of Torah. It's like basic hygiene for a nation that has been in slavery and is probably pretty degenerate. And uh, you know what? In the ancient world, some of that basic hygiene wasn't happening. In Europe in the Dark Ages, that basic hygiene wasn't happening. Like, I was reading about how French people wouldn't take baths for months. And when they finally, they would like force people to take baths and they'd go into the tub screaming at the top of their lungs like they were going to die, Right? And so, like, the plague hits, or the Black Death, or whatever, and Europeans, who haven't showered for months, are dropping dead everywhere, and Jews, who follow the Torah, and maintain basic hygiene, and wash their hands before they eat, they're not dying. And what's the, what's the, what's the of course, logically, what's the, what's the inference? Oh, we're dying and the Jews aren't, so they must be the ones who are somehow killing us. Like, ding-dong, right? But that's just a little snapshot from history about how, like, God actually cares about basic hygiene. That's Torah. 
Yeah. So like teaching your children to wash their hands, have showers regularly, that's Torah. Doesn't that give you a bigger understanding of Torah? The first doctor who instituted hand washing uh, was a Jew, and they noticed that year that he was in charge of the hospital, mm. people weren't getting sick and dying because the doctors were washing their hands. Yeah. Thank Elohim that he made that realization, hey? But here's the thing. If they were following Torah, if they hadn't thrown the whole Torah away in the name of grace and in the name of we're not under the law, like if, if the European countries hadn't done that, it would have saved millions of lives. Because his Torah, what did Paul say in Romans 7? The, the Torah is good. The commandment is good, right? It's not legalism, it's very good. Yeah. Well, those are some examples. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll share one more thing with you from this parsha. This is more like a, a, a theological uh, point that you can remember if you're ever talking with a Jewish person about atonement, because this is a problem. If your theology states that your atonement, your kapara, is through the temple offerings, then when the temple isn't there, you are in big trouble. Um, after the temple was destroyed, uh, basically all the sects of Judaism that were dependent on the temple disappeared, in short order. Uh, the Pharisees are the ones who pulled together um, and established... Uh, what you would, you know, that what basically grew into Orthodox Judaism today. They're the sect that survived. So Rabbinic Judaism today is the direct descendant of Pharisaic Judaism in the Second Temple era. Um, in the, like, 90s, around then, after the Temple was destroyed, some of the Rabbinic leadership came together to discuss this problem, and they concluded that atonement comes through th three things now, through charity, uh, like almsgiving, um, through prayer, and through, uh, I think the other was good deeds, doing good deeds. So that's some that's, um, classic Jewish theology. At the same time, you know, Orthodox Jews very much say we're dependent on the mercy of God for forgiveness, um, not on our works. But sometimes that is just what's said, and that's not the attitude that I've encountered. Um, anyway, here's, here's a very interesting verse like that, about this whole question of kapara, uh, atonement. In uh, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 11... It says, um, okay, it's talking about like a, a, a chatad, a sin offering, right? And it says, if his means are insufficient, okay, so it's like, um, it says, okay, so if you make an offering, you offer a lamb. If you can't afford a lamb, in verse 7, then bring uh, a couple turtle doves or two young pigeons. And then if you can't afford that, in verse 11, it says, but if his means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then for his offering, for that which he has sinned, he shall bring the tenth of an ephah, a fine flower, for a sin offering. He shall not put oil on it or place incense on it, for it is a sin offering. Now, this is key. Did you get this? Maybe you already got it. But it says very clearly in the Torah, blood atones for sin. The life of the soul is in the blood, and that is what I have given you on the altar. That's, a big, that's one of the big punches in Leviticus, right? But here, in Leviticus 5.11, he's saying, so if you can't afford an animal like a lamb or birds, then offer grain and that will atone for you. But didn't he say that it's the blood of the animal that atones for you? This isn't a contradiction. This is like a key to understanding something profound. It really wasn't about the blood of the animals that atoned. Because if it was, then the person who just offered the grain would be hooped, right? That tells us there must be a greater overarching offering that atones for people's sin. And what is that? It's the blood of the Mashiach, of Yeshua, that's right. So just write that verse down. If you're ever having an engaged dialogue with a Jewish person about kapara, atonement, that's a huge verse, huge verse. 
Leviticus 5.11. It, it says that it's not the blood of the animal offering. So, I mean, these chapters are really rich. They're really deep. That's an overview touching on some themes that hopefully will be practical to us. And yeah, let's, um, let's look at Galatians for 10 minutes and we'll wrap at 12.40. Galatians chapters 1 and 2, if you want to toggle over there. Um, okay, the first thing we discover is that there was a party going on in the New Testament. And we learn that um, these, uh, these guys who uh, practiced circumcision, that must have been a lot of fun, because it says they were a party. Uh, the, the, the party was with the circumcision guys, right? You know, it must have been a real kick. So we, we learn from this that circum- being circumcised is a lot of fun. It's a real party. Um, uh, can I get an amen or something? Or, eh. Oh, it's just, I don't know, it's kind of funny. The party of the circumcision. I guess a party can mean a couple of different things. Okay. Um, I. Don't they have party for, for Jewish babies are circumcised? Yeah, absolutely. It's a big party when a Brit happens. Uh, yeah, okay. I, um, I listened last year through a long sermon series by Daniel Lancaster that he gave on Galatians. Have any of you heard it? I really enjoyed listening through it. You can get it for free on their website, bethemmanuel.org. That's his congregation. Um, just go listen through Galatians. There are a couple things I don't agree with, um, you know, about some elements of the Torah being, quote, Jewish identity markers. And there, there's some things that I disagree with, but there's a lot of really good commentary that, that Daniel Lancaster has on Galatians, and I would encourage you to go through it. Um, I'm going to... I'm, I'm going to make a point of not just copying what he said. So this is original material, okay? If you want his perspective, you can go get it. Here's, here's, here's something really important to understand about Galatians, though. Maybe, maybe Daniel said this, I can't remember, because it's been a while. Okay, basically, Paul's letters are like listening to someone talking on the phone, right? So let's say I'm like sitting here with my telephone, I'm like, hello, yeah, right, okay, well, what? And then, you know, like, you can hear my end of the conversation, but you can't hear the other end. It's like you can imagine what someone's saying on the other end. You can infer some things, but it's a challenge. And that's what it's like reading Paul's epistles. Because he's, okay, Galatians, for instance, is extremely reactive. He is reacting to a specific situation in a specific area with regards to a specific set of people who are saying some specific things, right? So it's a very, it's a tailor-made epistle. And if we miss the context of Galatians, we miss the boat. And we're in danger of twisting Paul's letters, which is something that Simon Peter, in 2 Peter 3, explicitly warned us about. Right? Okay, so if you can imagine, let's say I was having a heated conflict resolution conversation with someone, or I was rebuking them over the phone, and you assumed that I was talking to you. Do you think it could happen that you would maybe get the wrong message or misunderstand some stuff? If you took what I was saying as if it was applying to you instead of to the person on the other end of the phone. That's what we've done with Galatians, historically speaking. We've taken Galatians and we've applied it to ourselves. And, and the message in Galatians does apply. The main, the main teaching there does apply. But sometimes we misapply it to situations. <laughs> and... Uh, the result is like we missed the point, eh? So we're going to go through Galatians and we are going to infer what we can get from this epistle and we're also going to try and read it in context. How does that sound? Yeah, actually like we, um, I'll tell you a little story. You know, we're reading through the second half of the apostolic scriptures this year. We're copying that from a congregation in southern Saskatchewan that had that idea. When I got their, their write-up for, uh, you know, what, what was going to be read on what Shabbat, they had the whole book of Galatians on one Shabbat. 
I just thought, you know, that's some pretty heavy material. Are you trying to skirt around something here? Or maybe just kind of like, let's skip over most of Galatians. Just, you know, just... So I broke it down. We're going to spend three weeks on Galatians, right? Because I love this book. There's some profound things in here that very much apply to us and the Messianic community. Okay, so um, let's try and hit a couple of the main things first. There's this, there's this battle going on. It's a very heated battle, and it seems like it's between bondage on the one side and freedom on the other side. And, you know, throughout this letter, Paul is championing the cause of freedom, right? Let, let's look at a verse that, that um, gives us an example of this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, It was because of the false brothers secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, our freedom, which we have in Messiah Yeshua, in order to bring us into bondage. So there is the heart of the issue right there. False brothers who snuck into a congregation to bring people into bondage, spying out the freedom that they had. Um, I'll give you the, the Greek words for that. Uh, the, the Greek word there for freedom is eleutheria, and uh, it's Strong's number 1657. It's from Strong's 1658, which is eleutheros, which means unrestrained, free to go where you want, when you want. Uh, it's basically the opposite of having a slave status. So if you're like a free person in a free society, that's that word. And it's the opposite of like being a slave and having someone tell you where to go and when to go there and what to do, etc. I'll give you an example of this word. I, I encourage you, um, you know, if you have eSword, check this out. If you don't have eSword, get eSword. And uh, just put in a word like this. Just hit Control-S, um, search, or bring up the search box, and then just key a word like this in. Like, um, just key in like G... 1658, the Strong's number, and um, it'll give you every single place where this word comes up in the New Testament. And you begin going through that list, and it gives you a much fuller understanding of the word. Here's an example of this, uh, this Greek word for freedom, eleutheros. In uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 26, um, when Yeshua asks um, Shimon Kepha about who pays the taxes, the sons of the king, or the, uh, the strangers, it says, when Peter said from strangers, Yeshua said to him, then the sons are exempt. And the Hebrew word there for exemption is eleutheros, they are free. So you just, it, gives you, it gives you a fuller understanding of the word, right? Um, here's the Hebrew word, or the Greek word, sorry, for bondage. It's like number uh, 2615, katadulo. Uh, it's a contraction of two words. Um, you know what a doula is? Like a birth assistant? My mother is a doula. Um, it's from the Greek word for a servant. Katadulo is like intensified, right? So it's like abject slavery. Total, total slavery is the idea there. And um, these, this is what the book of Galatians is all about. These two states of being and mindsets that are battling with each other. Um, here, I'll give you, I'll give you another um, keyword here. Galatians chapter 2, verse 3 is a word that comes up uh, several times. He says, not even Titus, who is with me, even though he was a Greek, was compelled. Everybody say compelled. To be circumcised. So I'll give you that word too, because it comes up several times in this. Um, it's number 315. Anangkadzo. And it, it, it means like to make someone do something, to force someone to do something. So no one was forcing Titus to be circumcised, right? Um, it's from um, Greek 
the Greek word um, strong number 318, which means like to need, to uh, something that's a necessity, compulsion, or constraint. So he's saying this was not what was, how Titus was being related to with regards to circumcision. Um, something we've been talking about as we've been going through Paul's letters is this term circumcision. What did, what did circumcision mean to Paul? Was it simply the physical act of being circumcised? Mm, or what did it mean? That's right. Circumcision means converting to Judaism, legally becoming a Jew. And uh, actually, I've pointed out a couple of places where this is obvious. I'll give you one from this area too. In uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 8. So it says that Peter was the apostle to the circumcised, i.e. who? The Jewish people. And Paul was the apostle to who? The Gentiles. So you can see here that Gentiles is like synonymous with, circum- with uncircumcised, and circumcised is synonymous with legal Jewish status, right? So he was saying there, Titus wasn't being forced to become legally Jewish. No one was pushing Titus to convert to Judaism. That's the context there, right? Uh, let, let's dig in a little bit more here. So the issue wasn't over circumcision. Mm-hmm. That's correct. It wasn't about circumcision because Paul circumcised Timothy and that was, that was acceptable, right? It's about, it's about an, an, an attitude and a way of relating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think there's something that we can infer from that. Like when Yeshua comes to us, he, re, he, will, respect, he, will, he will relate to you in a respectful way. He, he will respect your boundaries. If you don't want him, he's not going to push it. That seems to be, that seems to be the way he... We, like, we have a creator who gives us choice. That is not how the enemy operates. Um, if the enemy comes cloaked in, let's say, a religious spirit, the, the, he will often come in a loud way. He will come in a forceful way. You will feel like you're being made to do something. You know, like putting pressure on you, pushing you. That's not Yeshua's spirit. Now, there, there may be times when the spirit of the fear of Yahweh will fall on you and you will be terrified. And you will be like, I have to do what he says. And that's a good and healthy thing. But know the di- just recognize the difference between that. right? And, and, and stay on guard. We as a community are going to stay on guard against that. If there's a spirit that comes and pressures you to do something and says, you must do this, you have to do this, then dig in against that. Because that's not Yeshua's spirit. Yeshua leads and we follow by choice. Right? We recognize his voice and we go with him. Yeah, he stands at the door and knocks. That's an excellent example. So that, that, that's, that's something that we see in this, uh, in this epistle. Let's look at yeah, the, one, the one other key issue here that will help us to understand it. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul like, lays the whole situation out on the table. What's going on here? He says, Prior to the coming of certain men from Yaakov, from James, uh, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Okay, so here's the thing. We have Yaakov, the brother of Yeshua. He was like an ultra-traditional Jew. Okay? He didn't just do basic Torah. He did all of the Jewish traditions also. In fact, it, it appears that the party of the circumcision... Um, they regarded the oral law as just as binding as the written law. 
Uh, what's, what would be an example of something in the oral law, not eating with the Gentile? Let me ask you, is there anywhere in the Torah that says, don't eat with Gentiles? No. That's, a, that's an example of a Jewish tradition. That's an example of adding to the Torah, making offense to make sure you don't break one of the mitzvot. So Jewish people in the Second Temple era, they wouldn't even eat with Gentiles just in case something was offered to an idol or just in case there was some unclean food in there or something, right? But it was a Jewish tradition. Now, can you see the clash here? The, the, the issue in Galatians wasn't about people doing Torah. You know, we, we understand from the book of Acts that Paul was pro-Torah. He wasn't against the law of God. But in this instance, Paul was against this element from the oral law. He dug in his heels very strongly against this Jewish tradition. Why? Because it nullified one of the commands of God. So that's something very important to note. It's not that the Galatians were starting to do stuff from the Torah and Paul was flipping out about it. It's that the Galatians were... There were people there who were trying to force them to convert to Judaism and saying, you can't even be saved unless you're legally Jewish. So, you know, the ticket in is circumcision and we'll take it from there. That was the issue there. And that's what Paul was fighting against. And, you know, that's, our, that's the side of the phone conversation that we can hear. So, you know, at the end of two, this is where we can leave off. He says there are these two ways of being right with God. You can try doing the Torah... You know, getting right with him based on good deeds. And you know what? A lot of people in our culture do that. Well, I'm a good person, you know. And he says, it's not going to work because that's against the grace of Elohim, right? What's the other way? You just accept what Yeshua has done for you in faith. That's your means of justification. And I challenge you, if you have been justified through faith in Messiah, that's how you stay right with him also. You don't get justified through faith and then after that, you're right with God by doing mitzvot, like doing commandments. No, it's always by faith. It's only by faith. And then maybe your response will be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey you. I'm going to do some stuff from the Torah because I love you because you've made me righteous. This is who I am, right? That's kind of the idea there. So I'll, I'll challenge you with that. Um, I love how Paul finishes this. Like, you died. You died. Right? When Yeshua died, you died with him. And guess who is the one who's alive in you now? It's Yeshua. In, in the Greek, it doesn't say that you live by faith in the Son of God. It says you live by the faith of the Son of God. So He's the one living in and through us by His faith. He's the believer. Don't you love that? That sets me free. It's like, it is totally not about me. It's all about Him. Yeah. And that's, that's where, we're going, where we're going this week. I have one thing maybe we can discuss over Oneg. This is just something that I've been musing over. In Galatians 1.13, he says, You've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. And I wonder, I wonder how much Paul saw himself being in the framework of Orthodox Judaism, or if he saw that as something from his past history. I just, it's something that I'd like to talk about over Oneg if we actually get to it. So I'll leave you with that question. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.